Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. This is the Media Project, which is a half hour of commentary and analysis of the news media issues of the week, and we invite you to join us as we analyze all of that. I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union. I am here with some terrific colleagues, Dr. Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, investigative journalist Rosemary Armeo, and Judy Patrick, vice president of the New York Press Association and the longtime former editor of the Daily Gazette of Schenectady. So we invite you to join us as we talk about some of the issues here. Dr. Shartok, I might ask you, we have, as we speak, two debates down, one presidential, one vice presidential, where we have had journalists in the four. You have any thoughts about debate moderation? I think you've done some of that in your time. What do you, what do you think about how the moderators have done? Well, I think clearly the first debate was uncontrollable because Trump was just not letting up. And that left a terrible void. And he lost that debate because of his mouth. And nobody, but nobody could have controlled him, in my opinion. The second debate, we have an experienced journalist, and she could have done a little bit better uh, in terms of stopping people when they say, well, I just want to finish. No, you don't finish. You have your time. And when you're done with your time, that's it. So I think it's tough. And I think the rules coming out of this are probably going to get changed somehow. So, Rosemary, what about the other role for journalists, the post-debate analysis? How do you rate the work that we saw in television and beyond? Yeah, I think journalists are wasted and seized, as a matter of fact. Susan Page last night had a series of terrific questions. They were crafted. They were to the point. They were great. And they were totally ignored by the two participants who just used the finishing of the question as an excuse to go off and tell whatever story they wanted to. And that includes both of them. So I think they're totally wasted as MCs. Better to get like a game show host, I think, might be able to control them better. The post-analysis has been great, but it's really one-sided. In order to get a real picture of what happened, I switch. I go from MSNBC to Fox, back to CNN. I read The Times. I read The Washington Post. And then I feel like I really have an idea of what happened. Mm -hmm. Judy, you have some thoughts about the debate as a process in our democracy? (laughs) Yeah, I I agree that the concept is very good. I think Susan Page, a newspaper journalist, did a great job of writing good questions. But how good is a question if nobody answers it? And and I think she could have done a far better job of reining in the participants when it comes to running over time. I know people who have moderated debates know this is a common problem at debates that politicians somehow think it's okay to just run over their time. But last night there was way too much thank you, Vice President Pence, without success. We talked about this last night watching it. If you were the moderator, if you were Susan Page, and yes, Pence did it more, but she did it too, what would you have done? I mean, if it were someone who was a friend, you'd just say, shut the hell up. But what do you do when it's the vice president and then a powerful senator? 
I almost think that the debate commission tells these moderators that there are certain things they can and cannot do uh, because mm-hmm. they, they do seem to have their hands tied behind their back. What would I have done? I would have said, hang on a minute and be a little bit more authoritative. A third grade teacher could have reined that in better than these mm-hmm. two moderators have done. I think there comes a point where you need to take a step back, which Susan Page could have done. By the way, Susan Page is an old friend of mine. She was my predecessor on the Brookhaven beat on Long Island when I was a young reporter at Newsday, and she had already gone off to the Washington Bureau of Newsday at that time. But Susan could have jumped in there the way that actually Chris Wallace did, though without much success because he had Donald Trump on the court. But to take a step back and say, let me just say, Mr. Vice President, you are repeatedly going over the time allotment. I want to ask you to stop that and to respect the rules. I think you take a deep breath, take a step back, and try to reset. And it's it's true that Senator Harris did it a bit, but the vice president over and over and over again mm-hmm. was going on and on. And I think she needs to, you know, sort of like a yellow card in soccer, a warning. Here's what you need to do. You have to stop this. So that's just, just one thing. But overall, I think the best idea so far of the show is Rosemary suggesting a game show host. There we go. Reporters are so used to asking questions that they don't get answers to. It's a common problem. It happens far too much, especially at the national level. And for local and state reporters, I think they can do a better job nailing down politicians or or public officials to try to get them to actually answer the question. It seems to be like this is accepted in national politics. Print reporters want to cover everything. So Wallace had six subjects last night. She had nine, and there's no follow-up questions. And she's saying, okay, you have 15 seconds to answer that. Come on. It's impossible. So I think that if they had pared it down, if she had focused in on one or maybe two topics, we would have gotten a better debate. You're right, but then there comes the criticism, oh, well, she didn't do anything about right. you know, fill in right. the blank. She didn't ask any questions. Oh, yeah, you so can't you're, win. You can't win. <laughs> it's something that I think everybody understands that there are rules and then there are what we call the secret rules. The rules, of course, are very specific. They're all laid out in advance. But the background rules are what people say to them. This is the role of the moderator, and that we don't have any access to. The president is now saying he is not going to show up with the virtual debate. New plans were announced by the debate commission. He says, I'm not going to waste my time for virtual debate. So We may have seen, we'll see how this actually plays out, but we may have seen the last of debating. Oh, no, uh, that's such a loss. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a loss for television. Think of the revenue that comes in. Mm. Maybe there's not enough advertising revenue uh, because they take so few breaks, but it certainly is a loss in terms of viewership. And that's, you know, a question that I think people in the media actually are thinking about because with Joe Biden so far ahead in the polls, it's beginning to look like Donald Trump may lose in November. And it's a question that has been raised in Vanity Fair with an interesting article written by a guy I don't know named Tom Clute saying, this gravy train is coming to an end. News media begins to contemplate a post-Trump White House. What will be the impact on the news media, do you think, if there is no Donald Trump As Richard Nixon might have said, uh, no Trump to kick around anymore. Dr. Shartok, would you like to uh, address that? Well, we have never here at WAMC Public Radio have never seen as much money coming in as quickly as we have seen during a fund drive. And don't think that that hasn't crossed my mind a couple of times. But trust me, I'll take it. We'll do it the old-fashioned way, (laughs) one step at a time. No, I think CNN is going out of its way now to make sure that if Biden gives any utterance at all, 
They're going to give him some space. And you watch him, and he's perfectly fine, and he says very good things, but he ain't Trump, who will shock you and make you crazy. And that's what this is all about. Rosemary, what happens if there is no uh, Trump? Has he changed the media landscape for good? He has. We have now a constant appetite for, oh, God, what's happened now? You get up in the morning, turn on the radio, turn on the TV, something to find out what has he done now. That's not going to change. But Trump isn't going to go away. Give us a break. He's going to be there. He is not going to be an Obama respecting that tradition that ex-presidents don't berate and criticize the current one. He's going to be there on TV every freaking night. And so are his minions. And don't forget, he has set into motion operations that will continue in the, over the next four years. I'm thinking particularly of the Supreme Court that's going to be handling a number of issues, looking again at abortion, looking again at gay marriage, looking again at a number of things that we thought were settled, health care. I don't think there's going to be any dearth of news, and I don't think Trump is going to be absent from it. You know, an interesting turn of a phrase there, Rosemary, about he ain't going away. There are those people who think he is going away, and he's going away because he has broken the law. So it may well be, I just want to put this caveat in, that if, in fact, he's prosecuted and the prosecution's criminally prosecuted as successful, he could go to prison. Well, let me point out that a prosecution of Donald Trump would be top playing news for about a year. And then after that, he can put anybody he wants on his prison visitation list. And I would bet Fox News analysts would be there. So, again, wherever he is, we have not heard the last of Donald Trump until death takes him. He is going to be in the news. Well, I followed a truck with a bumper sticker that played out, you know, in 2024, the ticket would be Pence and Ivanka Trump. And then in 2032, it's Ivanka Trump. And I don't know, it had 20 years of Trumps playing out as our future in politics. Mm -hmm. So there you go. You know, in some respects, I think Trump has allowed the news media to be lazy because the news comes so fast and easy. Once that goes away, once when there's not a horror an hour, we're going to have to go back to doing real journalism. And that takes a little bit more time and a little bit more energy. It's easy to get the, this is the crazy thing Donald Trump said today, and here's the reaction to it and the outrage over it. And that can fill up the airways and that can fill up the front page. But when you have to start actually going into the policies and examining them and getting some real insight into what's happening, that takes time. And I think it's not going to be as easy for the media. It's going to take a little bit more work is what I'm trying to say. The real problem is that we haven't forgotten how to do real journalism. In many ways, Trump has forced us to work harder. He's hidden data. He's lied. Reporters have to go out and find other sources and other news. The problem is that a business model, again, there are fewer reporters to do that kind of work. The real question to me is, is the news media, I don't know whether this is an appropriate term or not, the handmaiden of Trump? In other words, because he does these utterances and because he distracts us so much, you know, who's talking about the big things because he's come out with God gave me this disease. So is the news media, and Rosemary, I address this to you because, you know, you've been a staunch defender of repertorial work and reporters. Is the news media responsible for that? I think they cannot escape some responsibility. Absolutely. They never took him seriously enough, fast enough in 2015-16, so gave him lots of free publicity. They continue to be dazzled by him, if you will. He knows, he understands what they want when they need it. He's stages things that are impossible for the media to ignore, seemingly. I refer to his return to the White House from Walter Reed the other day. That was crazy that we covered that gavel to gavel. So in many ways, yes, I think he 
has played the media. He also is expert at using social media, which, again, there's that uneasy relationship between traditional real media and the social media. And Trump has played that like a violin, too. I think that you have a good point there because there are moments that, of course, he fashions for the media that you almost cannot help but cover, especially if you're television. Now, think about him getting off the helicopter, coming back from Walter Reed and going up to the balcony and standing there like Mussolini with his chest out and getting himself adjusted. You know, while you may say, well, that's a silly made-for-TV moment, and there have been columns written about (laughs) in the immediate aftermath about that stance. But the fact is, it got our attention. And the truth is that Americans pay attention to visuals an awful lot. Uh, That's been the case now for 50 years. And so the president looking triumphant standing on the balcony of the White House is worth a great deal to him. And he's very conscious of that. We find it very hard to turn our eyes away. It Mm. is, and we've talked about this a lot in this program, it's the rubbernecking of a terrible accident on the highway. Mm. And that is kind of what the Trump presidency amounts to. It's a calamitous collision. And we've been paying a lot of attention to it. And the question is how you move beyond that. Certainly, you could say it's going to be good for Fox News because with a Biden in the White House, Fox News is going to have a ripe target every day to take cracks at, even if they're little primetime entertainers, Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity and, you know, the dude with the bow tie, uh, even if uh, they don't have their buddy anymore in the White House. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, our wonderful producer here, Gustina, was talking to me this morning and saying, can you really believe the amount of attention that was given to the fly on the top of the vice president's head, of Pence's head, during the debate? I mean, it was as if the fly was the major star of of the debate. (laughs) It was was a sign. It's the devil right there. (laughs) Do you remember when Obama had an interview and there was a fly bothering when he reached out and smashed it? That's all I could think of, the contrast between Pence just letting it stay there. That's right. Obama got him, didn't he? My God. Yeah. (laughs) My analogy. If you were a Buddhist, you probably didn't like it, but okay. Well, you know, we will you know, miss such things as Laura Ingram's amazing turn when stories don't align with reality. When the president tested positive for coronavirus, here's what Laura Ingram said. The fact that it took him this long, frankly, to get a positive test should be reassuring to people. He's met thousands and thousands of people over the last six months. So it was oh really good news, she said, that he finally, you know, he, he fought it off as long as he could, but he finally got a positive test. And, oh, you know, maybe we, we, we can do without that kind of balderdash. I'm trying to think of the right word for that. Judy, what were you about to say? <laughs> you know, right. Well, this continues our discussion from last week where we talked about how you really have to hold Fox to account for their reckless disregard for the health and safety of Americans. You know, they've got to be held accountable for it. But I also wanted to say the president really is controlling the message and controlling the media. Now that he's he has the virus, he thinks he's cured. He doesn't think he's contagious, but his only contact with us has been these these videos he releases on social media. He's entirely bypassing the media, and I feel like I'm in a in a fascist country because the media yeah. isn't involved. And this is truly scary. 
Yeah, I agree. You're right, Judy. You really are. If you're one of the reporters assigned to cover the White House, of course, at this point, you have to be concerned about your health because we have had at least three reporters connected to the White House who are infected with coronavirus. The wife of New York Times correspondent Michael Shear has been infected. It seems highly likely, according to at least a senior administration official, that the outbreak originated at the Supreme Court announcement. That certainly seems to be the case, even though the White House isn't doing contact tracing. So for the media, there is a direct threat, and that is covering Trump's White House can make you sick. I wouldn't want to do it. Statement. (laughs) (laughs) All right. This is the Media Project from Northeast Public Radio. I'm Rex Smith with Alan Shartok and Rosemary Armeo and Judy Patrick, and we're grateful to have you. And if you wish to offer your thoughts, media at wamc.org is our email address, media at wamc.org, and our producer, David Gustina, will find your comments and share them with us, and we will find out all kinds of interesting things here. One of the things that is most notable that we just have to make note of in an era when we are seeing the kinds of actions by our government that we had previously seen only from despots, a Russian journalist, Irina Slavina, 47 years old, set herself afire in Russia the day after authorities in her hometown searched her apartment. This is not the first time that we have had a death of a Russian journalist, but I don't know of a time when there has been a suicide. Her final Facebook message was, I ask you to blame the Russian Federation for my death. And it's a tragedy that just reminds us if we needed it, and I guess we do, that the toll on journalism of closed societies is very high. And when we fight back against efforts in the Trump administration to impose the kind of autocratic standards that we have seen from the Kremlin, in the Philippines, in China, places where journalists' lives are endangered, when we fight back about that, it's because we see what happens when working journalists are risking life, health, and freedom simply to do their jobs. And of course, if there is another, if there is another Trump term, the only thing I can say, Rex, to your point, and I think it's a great one, is you ain't seen nothing yet. Because up to now, you know, people have pretty well been able to say what they wanted to say. But this is coming now, and the very people you just named, the fascists, the Putins, you know, the Dutartes, the other guys, those are his friends, and we know what they have done to the press. The one thing the U.S. has that none of those other places, and places like Czechoslovakia and Africa, where we've also seen death and beating of journalists, is an active civil society. And that includes the press, for sure, a vibrant free press, and also groups, all kinds of citizen action groups. The U.S. has a very, very strong civil society, and that has been our protection, and I hope that it will still hold. So far, it has. As well as a court, a Supreme Court, that understands an awful lot of this, Rosemary, and I know you've paid a lot of attention to the court and its rulings on this, but we see the deterioration of that court into a political organ right now, and I'm just saying watch out in terms of what the press has to look for. 
You know, Harris One made question. a good point last night when she was pressed about, are you going to pack the court? And she said, you want to talk about packing? Let's talk about the federal judiciary right now with 300 Trump appointees, many of them rated subpar by other legal experts. That's what's packing the court. And you're right. It doesn't even have to go to the Supreme Court. Some of the cases on uh, open records and libel will end up in those federal courts that are very much more conservative now than that they had been. One of the questions, uh, it seems, to me whether or not Donald Trump is reelected is whether there ought to be some statutory change that might force some sort of transparency. So let's consider this. We've had the president off for days in the hospital, a man who we know has health issues. He's clinically obese. He's 74 years old, which puts him at greater risk than the average Americans for the coronavirus. And yet his own doctor is refusing to give us much information. We don't really know what's going on. I wonder if there might be an appetite in Congress for legislation to require a degree of medical transparency on the part of the President of the United States. It's a provocative question, I think, because we say now, yes, we want to know this, but at what level is there a right to privacy about your personal health of even the president? So the question is, do we want to have some sort of imposition of required transparency when it comes to the commander in chief? Why don't we turn to Judy first on this, who I think I cut off a little bit ago. Well, you know, if you remember Jimmy Carter back in the day, he had a bad case of hemorrhoids and had to get some treatment. And his press people said, you know, we can just say it's a medical event you have to take care of. And then Carter said, no, 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 let's just call it hemorrhoids. Even though it's embarrassing to me, I don't want people to be concerned. I want to call it for what it is. I'm not sure what level of privacy a president is entitled to. But once again, you can pass a law, but you've seen in this case, depending on who's in the office, they're very good at, at flouting the laws. This norm of being responsible and telling people, for example, when was the last time the president tested negative? How often is the president tested for coronavirus? These basic questions aren't being answered. And it's outrageous that there isn't a wellspring of public opinion that says we need to know this information for a variety of reasons. Well, you know, we have the 25th Amendment, and it was designed to prevent this kind of thing from happening, and it's been ignored by this president. So, yes, we could have more specificity, and I'm all for it. But if you think about the Carter example that you just gave about the hemorrhoids, you know, they sell an awful lot of Preparation H in this country. And I think intuitively Carter may have known that it was time to bring that out into the sunlight. We can talk about a law, and I think a president has no privacy. When you go for that office, you give up your personal life for a brief period of time, and so it should all come out. But to get a law to a Senate that's filled with a Trump sycophants and to a bunch of old guys who have their own health problems that they don't want to come out, zero, zero chance. And the question then becomes, if the Democrats get into power, they're old and they got gray on their heads, too. I'm not making an argument against it. But, you know, all the time we talk about, oh, then there'll be this kind of reform and we don't get it because the new guys don't want to adhere to it either. Yeah, there's something to the idea that it doesn't matter what party's in charge. Some of these things, like the Electoral College is another one. Both parties rail about it when they're out of power, and then they get in power and they just keep it in. So, Okay. One other interesting topic that we need to take up before we leave has to do with climate change and with the spread of disease, such as we've seen with coronavirus. I was quite taken by an article that was presented to us speaking of the dependence that epidemiologists have on monitoring health outbreaks. 
and that local news media are essential to that. And with the local news ecosystem, let's say, more beleaguered than ever, the question is if we're going to be able to provide some of the early warning of health problems that may well depend upon local news coverage. I think particularly of the decline of health care and environment reporting simply because there are fewer reporters out there. We just don't have the muscle that we used to have to do that kind of thing. I don't know what the solution to this is, but it does seem as though we are going to find detecting the next disease outbreak, finding the flaws in our the new elements where our environment is decaying. I think we're going to find it more difficult to, to do all of that because of the decline of local news. Yep. Yep. I was surprised by that story. I remember reading stories about national outlets tapping into local news coverage for shootings, police shootings, for example, which I find understandable. But at the local level, you would think epidemiologists would be having some sort of reporting procedure where people go to a doctor and a doctor diagnoses the problem and tells the health department, the county, the state, and then it goes up to the federal. I would almost think that would be a more accurate way of doing it because often when you're in local news, it's hard to cover health outbreaks because especially now with HIPAA regulations. Yes, except that in local news, you do find, for example, where outbreaks might begin. For example, the big party at the University of Albany that apparently triggered a COVID outbreak in Albany two weeks ago is the kind of thing that I think an epidemiologist would learn about in the local news media but might not otherwise find if you're just looking at the raw data. So it turns, yes, I was surprised, too, to learn from this reporting with epidemiologists that media reports are one of the best and earliest sources of outbreak information. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Alan will think that it's self-serving, but uh, we can say that, uh, you know, our health depends upon local media (laughs) being strong, right? Sure. A reporter covering the U.N. or WHO would also help. We don't have regular coverage of that either. As we've downsized and receded, there are all kinds of gaps in the coverage. It's kind of frightening. Even just having a reporter sitting in a meeting or covering an institution changes the behavior towards the better, towards openness and away from corruption. And we have fewer and fewer reporters out there. And speaking of self-serving, WAMC has a program every Monday about medical issues and having a doctor on all the time. And Rex, I'm very proud of the job we're doing educating the public about each of these diseases. Well, it has two doctors on every time. The other one would be you, of course, doctor. No, uh, not, not lately. <laughs> it's Dr. Ray Graff now. Oh, that's right. Ray is taking over that. How about that? Dr. Well, Ray you know. Graff, yes. It's a wonderful thing. All right. We have run out of time for our show this week. I'm afraid that is the Media Project. I'm Rex Smith, and on behalf of Alan Shartok and Judy Patrick and Rosemary Armeo and our producer, David Gustina, we thank you for joining us and hope you'll come back again next week for the Media Project. Now, newspapermen are such interesting people. They used to work like hell just for romance. But finally, the movies notwithstanding, they all got tired of patches on their pants. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is editor-at-large of the Times Union. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and former chair of the Department of Journalism at the University at Albany. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at WAMC.org or just download Download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening.
Their policy's an acrobatic thing. They claim to represent the common people. It's funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.